Welcome to JourneyWithJesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Original Goodness, A Prayer from Outer Space. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, June the 19th, 2011. On Christmas Eve 1968, the Apollo 8 astronauts Frank Borman, Bill Anders, and Jim Lovell celebrated humanity's first orbit around the moon by reading ten verses of 3,000-year-old poetry. Even the most irreligious person would have recognized the evocative words. In fact, the astronauts read ten verses from the lectionary for this week that begin with the first sentence of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I was 13 years old back then. I still remember the emotional resonance of those elegant words as people around the world watched the grainy television images and listened to NASA's crackly radio transmissions with their signature beeps. Planet Earth never looked so beautiful, so mysterious, and so very fragile. In an interesting footnote, the atheist Madeleine Murray O'Hare sued NASA over the Bible reading, but lost. The creation story in Genesis doesn't enlighten us about history or science as we understand those disciplines today. How could it? That's not the purpose of this poetry. For cosmology, we go with gratitude to the physicist. Although it's worth noting that when it comes to the ultimate origins of something rather than nothing, and why there's conscious life rather than mere inanimate matter, cosmologists are just as baffled as the theologians. Rather, the ancient story elucidates truths that transcend science and that subvert our own modern myths. Like Carl Sagan's famous and grave intonation on his show Cosmos, that the universe is all there ever has been, is, or ever will be. Or that the universe is the random result of blind chance, even though everywhere we look we discover intricate design. Or that it's a geoconcentric conceit to construe planet Earth and every human being as uniquely special in the order of things. Theologians speak of original sin, separation, and alienation. From God, from ourselves, from each other, and even from the earth. These are important themes that we confess together every Sunday morning. For confirmation of humanity's fall from divine grace, just pick up the daily newspaper, speak to a good therapist, or contemplate our environmental catastrophes and genocides. Having lived through two world wars, the American pastor and theologian Reinhold Niebuhr broke with the optimistic liberalism of his colleagues and instead insisted that human sin was an empirically verifiable doctrine. But prior to, and more important than original sin, is original goodness. The essential goodness of creation is the most conspicuous theme in this story. On the successive days of creation, the author repeats the same refrain six times, that what God created is good. Chapter 1, verse 3, God saw that the light was good. One ten, land and seas 
God saw that it was good. 112, vegetation. God saw that it was good. 119, sun, moon, and stars. God saw that it was good. 121, living creatures and birds. God saw that it was good. And in 125, livestock and wild animals. God saw that it was good. Then on the sixth day, we read in 131, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Satisfied with his vast array of created goodness, on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. To early Christians who insisted on abstaining from marriage, sex, and certain foods, Paul was very blunt in 1 Timothy 4.4. Everything created by God is good. Christians were so convinced of this essential goodness of creation that they borrowed a technical term from the non-Christian Neoplatonic philosopher Plotinus of the 3rd century in order to define evil. Evil, they said, wouldn't exist without the prior good. It's a parasite on good, a provocatio boni, that is, a lack, limitation, or distortion of something inherently good. They also rejected the early idea of docetism, from the Greek word dokeo, to seem, that argued that Jesus' physical body was an illusion which only seemed real, a misguided attempt to protect Jesus from what they thought was the evils of material creation. The creation story reminds us not to fall into the dualist thinking that the spiritual world is good and that the material world is evil. We should never deny sin and evil, but we should remember that they are penultimate rather than ultimate realities. In the book, Good is the Flesh, Body, Soul, and Christian Faith, Brian Rand's poem, Good is the Flesh, captures these creation-affirming truths. Good is the flesh that the word has become. Good is the birthing, the milk and the breast. Good is the feeding, caressing, and rest. Good is the body for knowing the world. Good is the flesh that the word has become. Good is the body for knowing the world, sensing the sunlight, the tug of the ground, feeling, perceiving within and around. Good is the body from cradle to grave. Good is the flesh that the word has become. Good is the body from cradle to grave, growing and aging, arousing, impaired, happy in clothing or lovingly bared. Good is the pleasure of God in our flesh. Good is the flesh that the word has become. Good is the pleasure of God in our flesh. Longing in all as in Jesus to dwell. Glad of embracing and tasting and smell. Good is the body for good and for God. Good is the flesh that the word has become. As a divinely created entity that's distinct from God, Christians believe that our earth is sacred, but we don't believe that it's divine. Furthermore, we acknowledge that our earth is dependent and contingent, 
that it won't last forever, even if it lasts four to five billion more years, as astrophysicists predict. That's a very long time, but it's not forever. In the end, we read in Colossians chapter 1, 15 to 20, since God created all things for himself, he will reconcile all things to himself. The notion of our planet's ongoing preservation is as important as its original creation. Most remarkable of all, says the Hebrew poet, when God finished his own creative activity, he rested. He then turned to humankind created in his own image and said, Here, now it is yours to populate, steward, rule over, and manage, but not to plunder, neglect, or exploit. Whereas creation was God's divine act, preservation is our distinctly human responsibility. It's up to us to care for the goodness of God's gift of creation. Less well known than the astronaut's reading of Genesis from lunar space is a prayer that Frank Borman subsequently offered to people everywhere. After completing their scientific work, Borman took a breath and then prayed for God's good creation in every human being created in his image. Give us, O God, the vision which can see thy love in the world in spite of human failure. Give us the faith to trust the goodness in spite of our ignorance and weakness. Give us the knowledge that we may continue to pray with understanding hearts. And show us what each one of us can do to set forth the coming of the day of universal peace. Amen. For books this week, I review Jason K. Stern's Dancing in the Glory of Monsters, The Collapse of the Congo and the Great War of Africa, New York, Public Affairs, 2011, 380 pages. The deadliest war of our generation has been the underreported conflict in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, former Zaire. Since the start of conflicts there in 1996, 5 million people have perished out of a population of 50 million, a staggering 10% of the population. Over half of those deaths occurred since the war ended in July 2003. The overwhelming majority of the victims were civilians, and about half of them were children. Millions more Congolese have fled to neighboring countries as both a cause and a consequence of the war. Hundreds of thousands of women have been raped. Peace accords officially ended the war, although continued hostilities and the social, economic, and political consequences of the war make for a fragile peace. How do you understand a war in a country the size of Western Europe, with 200 ethnic groups, and that involves nine border countries, the interventions of countries like France, Belgium, the United States, Cuba, and China, not to mention 30 rebel militias and proxy armies composed of mercenaries from as far away as Serbia. Next to the work by Gerald Prunier, Africa's World War, 
Jason Stearns has written a critically acclaimed account based upon 10 years of living and reporting from that region. His book bears witness to the untold stories of many millions of Congolese citizens. The Congo has suffered 400 years of political disintegration that began with the European and Arab slave trade of the 16th century and was followed by the wholesale plunder of the region in the 19th century by Belgium's King Leopold. When independence from Belgium came in 1960, the colonial authorities handed over government to a Congolese people almost wholly unprepared to manage their vast state. And then for 32 years, President Joseph Mobutu Sese Seko, who was backed by the United States, by the way, epitomized corruption, repression, and incompetence. Laurent Kabila overthrew Mobutu in 1997, was himself assassinated in 2001, and then followed by his son, Joseph Kabila. The trigger for the first Congolese war was the 1994 Rwandan genocide, when mainly Hutu people slaughtered 800,000 Tutsis in the space of three months. About a million Hutus then fled 200 miles west into eastern Congo, set up a government in exile, and were pursued by the new Tutsi government that sought retaliation. Mobutu supported the Hutus against Rwanda's Tutsi government. About 50,000 refugees perished in the first month from starvation, cholera, thugs, and massacre by the Rwandan government. This first Congo war lasted until Kabila overthrew Mobutu in 1997. What's often called the Second Congo War pitted Kabila against Uganda and Rwanda in more obvious economic conflicts from 1998 until the peace accords of 2003. But like the layers of an onion, the Congo conflict contained wars within wars that were the product of many causes. Self-defense and retaliation were obvious. Political ideologies played some part. Economic plunder of Congo's vast natural resources of copper, cobalt, and diamonds enriched unscrupulous companies, and especially Uganda and Rwanda, threatening about the only way for Congo to pay for its war. The regional politics of nine neighboring states exacerbated conflicting interests. It's easy to criticize the deep ethnic hostilities but as Stearns notes, ethnicity was the last and strongest personal and institutional identity left in the country after the near-complete erosion of the state. And so, at the end of the book, he concludes, the Congo War had no one cause, no clear conceptual essence that can be easily distilled into a couple of paragraphs. Like an ancient Greek epic it is a mess of different narrative strands. The title of the book, Dancing in the Glory of Monsters, The Collapse of the Congo and the Great War of Africa. The author is Jason K. Stearns, 2011. For film this week, I review a documentary called Gasland, from the year 2010. 
If you think that natural gas is a clean alternative to oil, this documentary film will disabuse you of that widespread myth. When writer-director Josh Fox received an inquiry from an energy company to lease his woodsy Pennsylvania property for $100,000 up front, he was suspicious. And for good reason. Armed with a camera, persistence, and commitment to a cause, he documents the horrendous and vile environmental degradation to land, air, and water caused by what's called hydraulic fracturing. The process that's used to extract natural gas from tens of thousands of wells around the country. So-called fracking pumps a toxic cocktail of 596 chemicals into the ground to expedite the release of the natural gas. And no, energy companies don't care about the lives or lands that they ruin. We watch kitchen faucets in polluted marshes burst into flames. We watch the government give huge concessions to companies like Halliburton. And we watch the experts lie before Congress as they deny the obvious. Gasland was nominated for an Oscar as Best Documentary Film in 2011 and won the special jury prize at Sundance. The title of the film, Gasland. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a poem called Otherwise by Jane Kenyon, 1947 to 1995. It's a poem about the goodness of life and work. I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birch wood. All morning I did the work I love. At noon I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed with paintings on the walls and planned another day just like this day. But one day, I know, it will be otherwise. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, June 19th, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.